people don't want to do that research because they're afraid that it's then a no for them. Well, someone else is doing it, so I can't live out my dream. I can't live out my vision. But it's important just to be able to distinguish yourself. How are you different than everyone else? And you're going to have to answer that question when you fill out your grant applications. You're going to have to answer that question in front of major donors. That research is for you. It's not to discourage you, but it's to help propel you forward. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Constant Contact. Today, I'm interviewing Tiffany Allen. Tiffany is the CEO of Boss on a Budget, a small firm that teaches communities to form strong nonprofits and obtain funding. Tiffany's focus leans towards aiding small, grassroots organizations and those helmed by communities of color. With a repository of educational content, digital tools, and personal coaching, she's built a supportive foundation for those ready to make a difference in the world. Armed with a potent blend of strategic insight and a heartfelt passion, Tiffany has steered numerous nonprofits to a path of sustainable growth. In this episode, Tiffany helps us gain an understanding of how to construct a robust board and team. She talks about the necessary shift from a volunteer-run organization to having a paid staff and gives insight into recognizing when it might be the right time to close down a nonprofit organization too. There is so much wisdom inside this episode and I cannot wait to dive in. So let's go meet Tiffany. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Tiffany Allen. Tiffany, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you for having me. Let's kick off with you just telling everyone a little bit about you and your work and what brings you to our conversation today. Sure. So I created a business called Boss in a Budget, and we really focus on people who are thinking about starting a nonprofit or who are right in that startup phase, and they're trying to figure out how to scale. So they may want to be full-time with their nonprofit, or they're just trying to figure out how to raise money so they can do good work. So I produce educational content on YouTube, and I also have workbooks and master classes, and I do coaching with new nonprofit founders because I found that that's a piece of the sector that consultants often avoid, <laughs> probably because they think that people don't have the resources or the likelihood of them being successful is low. But I really do have a passion for small grassroots new organizations and those led by communities of color. So it's really a passion of mine to help these people. So I've been doing this since 2016, and it's been an amazing journey. Wow. Amazing. So I love what you were saying before around so many nonprofits start as that like passion project, side gig, like doing it on top as a volunteer of their other work and that shift from that into it being their career and their livelihood and being able to give their full time and energy and get compensated for it. That's a big shift. And I'm constantly getting DMs from folks who are like, this is a fully volunteer effort. Here's where we're at. How do I actually start this thing? So I want to talk a little bit about how you start a nonprofit from like the ground zero, even maybe in that volunteer capacity as a side thing. But then also I'd be really curious about your advice moving from there into this actually it becoming a more established and formalized organization with paid staff. Let's start with people who are thinking of starting one and they don't know like what to do next. I think you should always start with your why. You need to understand 
why you're doing this and who you're serving. Because anybody that you get to attach to your mission, you want to get board members, you want to get donors, they need to be able to align with that why. They need to hear the message and they need to understand why they would get behind it. So getting very clear for yourself, why do I even want to have a nonprofit? And understanding that a nonprofit isn't the only way you can do some good in your community. So that's not always the best step for you. So you really need to do your research and figure out, okay, is this the path I want to take? Do I want the long nights? Do I want to have to deal with the board? Do I want to have to deal with the paperwork? But then getting clear on that why. Because some people start their nonprofits because they just want to help. So they have no idea who they want to help. They have no idea how to execute a program. They're just saying, look, in honor of my grandma, I want to do something good because she poured into me. I want to pour into someone else. But it's really important for you to get clear on what's the gap in the field that you want to fill or who has a voice that's unheard or who has is not receiving a service that's really needed in your community and zero in on that. I would absolutely start there strategically and then start finding people who that message resonates with, because that would be your early team. That would be your early board members. It's really important to attract a strong board. And this is like the number one mistake that people make. They put their families on their paperwork because that's convenient for them. But it's really important for you to think about what kind of talent you want on your board, what kind of perspectives, what kind of experience. And it could be whatever makes sense for your organization. But thinking critically about your team and how they can help you get from A to B is so critical. So like taking the time to really build a strong team, even if it's just three of you. If it's a strong three, that's so much better than an ineffective 10 or people you're just putting on the paperwork. So I would say start there, like get your message clear and then start recruiting the right people. And then more practically, you need to register with the state. So you need to be able to do your articles of incorporation. You need to be able to get your employer identification number with the IRS. And then you would get 501c3 status with the IRS if that's the goal you have for yourself. And so a lot of people start with the paperwork. But I say start with the core message, your why, and then the people. I couldn't agree more with what you said around sometimes we put the cart before the horse. And I think there's so many more ways to live out your values and make an impact today than I feel like there were 20 years ago. And so I think a lot of us grew up or were exposed to change making work only through a nonprofit lens. And so we think about, I want to make a difference. I want to help. Okay, I'm going to start a nonprofit. And we move to that piece too quickly. You know, the piece you said around, like I heard two things there. There was like the why, but there was also the research, like what's happening inside your community already. You want to help. You have a why that's oriented around making a particular impact. But the other first thing to check is like, are other people already working on that? And is there something that exists that you can plug into, that you can support, that you can amplify and only create your own nonprofit when there's a gap between what's already happening and the problem that you see and the solution that you believe is necessary to close that gap, right? Right. I completely agree. And I think that some people don't want to do that research because they're afraid that it's then a no for them, right? Like, mm. well, someone else is doing it, so I can't live out my dream. I can't live out my vision. But it's important just to be able to distinguish yourself. How are you different than everyone else? And you're going to have to answer that question when you fill out your grant applications. You're going to have to answer that question in front of major donors. So it's so important to do that work first. So you know out the gate, this is the value I bring. And you can come with that confidence. So that research is for you. It's not to discourage you, but it's to help propel you forward. 
That is such good advice because you're right. You're going to have to answer that question a million more times after you start your nonprofit. So you better be able to answer it out of the gate. And collaboration is not easy. So like, I don't say like work with another nonprofit, like as if that's such an easy thing to encourage people to do. And going out on your own and starting something completely new is also not easy. So really having a sense for that landscape and that space. I love that that's how you're encouraging folks to lean into it. And so I don't know exactly even how to ask this question, but a lot of nonprofits work are somewhat duplicative but sometimes in important ways, like the missions can be really duplicative, but the services provided might be really different or the strategies used or even the theory of change. And so when people are doing that research around like who's addressing this issue in my community, do you have any advice on how people sort through like, okay, yes, there are four organizations here addressing early childhood literacy, but none of them are doing it through a free community bookstore. And that's where I think change can really happen or what could be really added into the services around this issue area. How do you help folks sort of think about that nuance? So I usually recommend people do like a basic SWOT analysis. So their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities and threats. But even before you do that analysis for yourself in doing that, what we're saying is market research. Ask yourself, what is this organization doing well? What do they excel at? But what are some of the things they're not doing very well? What are some of the gaps that you see? So if you identify certain nonprofits in your area or other organizations that are similar and you identify their gaps, And you use that in your assessment process to decide, okay, given where everything is right now in the market, what strengths do we bring to the table? Like what are our internal strengths? What are our weaknesses? And then where are the opportunities that we saw by doing that market analysis and where are the potential threats? Because we know what they're doing well and not so well. So I think just keeping it simple and doing like a SWOT analysis and really assessing and really studying organizations around you really will pay off. And I also like to tell people to study other organizations because you want to see who's funding them and you want to see how they present their mission and you want to see how they fundraise and how they put their campaigns together because that can give you a lot of good insight too. Mm, Yeah, that is such good advice. I just had another episode recently where we did talk a little bit about board setup and who the right board is, but you touched on that a tiny bit too. Are there any quick tips and advice around like, here are kind of the three skill sets I think about off the bat that you want to make sure are on that founding board? I typically tell people, if you're not going to have some kind of legal counsel on your board, have someone who is tapped in or who can access someone for legal counsel, because when you need someone to review your policies or review your bylaws, it's really important that you have that connection. And then also an accountant or someone who's comfortable with accounting or bookkeeping because nonprofit accounting is different and you have to get really comfortable with getting into the weeds of your numbers, making sure you're doing your accounting the right way and also budgeting, which is a big hindrance for new organizations. They're so afraid to create budgets or intimidated by it. So you need someone who's comfortable diving in, develop your budget and do your bookkeeping and all of that. I think those skill sets are key, but beyond that, Obviously, like programmatic expertise, which a lot of people tend to have, 
And also the perspective of people who are like your clients or who are your potential clients. Like you need that lived experience as well so that you're designing your programs in a way that are effective in a way that's relevant to the people you're serving. Mm. I love what you talked about there. And I'm wondering if there seems to be this big question, which I have even as we're talking, which is like, what comes first, the chicken or the egg when it comes to creating your organization's programs and then also funding those programs? So how do you recommend folks start like when they're in this sort of initial phase, they have their board set up, they know what they want to do. And now they're like, okay, how do I fundraise around this? And then what is that relationship between needing to show program impact and then also getting the funding to be able to show the program impact? Right. Yeah, I know what you mean. (laughs) I get this question a lot, actually. So people ask me, well, will people give to me if we haven't done any programming yet? My response to them is yes, if you message it the right way. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm going to try to get to every point that you made. The first thing that I will say is I helped an organization raise over $100,000 and they were very new and they did not serve one person. But the people who, and this was through a peer-to-peer fundraising campaign, the people who were doing the fundraising on behalf of the organization were so fired up about the mission. They were so fired up about what the possibilities were that they were willing to go in and give money. So if you message it the correct way, then the people who resonate with your mission and your message are not afraid to give. We see examples every day of people who just give because they hear a good story. They don't necessarily have to see an impact yet. It's typically more smaller gifts though. I'm not talking about like major donors, but I do think it's important for you to be able to have some sense of what you want to do and what your programming is and the impact it will make because that's what you're going to fundraise on. You're going to fundraise on what is the impact on this one person or what is the impact on this community? And you have to be able to articulate that. And it's hard to do that if you haven't imagined or written down what your program is. But I also realized that the startup phase is so messy that people are in different places. So some people have been doing this work for years and just now want to legitimize it with 501c3 status. And I'm doing legitimize it with quotes because you are legitimate if you're doing good work. So sometimes like people are afraid to talk about what they've done before. And so they're not messaging like the work that they're doing leading up to that, convincing people to give. And then some people have an idea, but they haven't really done anything yet. So what I'm trying to say is like, you could be in different places in the startup phase, but if you message it the right way, if you build community around it, if you get people excited and fired up, that's not a hindrance for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the visioning piece. You did. Yeah, really around like, how do you galvanize support around the vision? And one of the other things that that makes me wonder, think of is we hear a lot around, okay, your first fundraising are friends and family round, which like that term in and of itself feels incredibly inequitable. And I often have a lot of people come to me saying, my friends and family aren't who y'all are talking about when you use that term. And so can I still start a nonprofit, even if I don't feel like I have a personal network that has the capacity to help fund at the level we need to really like launch this work? What do you recommend for folks who are in that mindset, in that position to think about how they build out their funding vertical? 
I have two perspectives on that. The first thing is I recommend the same thing for people starting out. I do recommend that people do peer-to-peer fundraising because it's important to connect with the people that you already know, that you associate with personally, socially, and professionally. It's important for you to be able to share your message and not be afraid to let your family and your associates know what you're doing. But I also think that there's more treasure in people's networks than they think. And I'm not talking about $1,000 gifts. So when I'm talking about peer-to-peer fundraising, an average gift could be $25. That campaign that I mentioned before, that was the average ask. But if you get enough people excited, it can get you the startup funding that you need. So I still think it's important for people to get used to asking their personal and professional networks and not discounting small gifts. So just because someone can't give more than $25 or more than $100, it's still helpful for your mission and it all helps move you forward. So that's the first thing that I would say. But the other thing is that in order to start, you have to put yourself out there. You have to get comfortable sharing your message and tapping into the media and tapping into other organizations like grant funders and corporations in your area. And by doing that, you are expanding your network. So that may not exist when you started, but getting the confidence to get out there and talk about your message over and over again is going to help you scale. The other thing I want to say, though, is that people really do need to be realistic. So sometimes people come to me and say, this is going to take a million dollars for us to do this right. And so they're coming to me saying, Tiffany, help me raise a million dollars. I'm saying to them... (laughs) Can you slow walk this a little bit? Like you don't even know who your donors are. You haven't even tested the message and see how people respond. So I think that people also have to manage their expectations that they may want their organization to be at one level and you may get there in year five. So you'll get there, but you have to take the steps and it may just be you raising 50,000 the first year and then you're growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Okay. There's so much good advice and wisdom in there. And I hear often a lot of discomfort around asking people for money that people don't feel like have a lot of money to give. And they feel really uncomfortable about making invitations to invest in something. And I'm just curious your perspective on that. I think I use these terms, so forgive me if it rubs people the wrong way, but I often like to say that people are grown and people make decisions for themselves that make sense for them. And too many times we go into a situation assuming what a person will or won't do. And it's our job to put the opportunity out there. It's our job to inform them what this will do. And then they have to decide whether or not they will give or not. And I tell people when I train on this, I'm sure plenty of people who we think don't have money will spend money on the things they want to spend the money on. And so it's not for me to decide for that person what they can and can't do. I can't make that decision for them. All I can do is say, this is a need. Will you join me? And the answer is yes or no, or maybe later. But I can't make that assumption. And I don't want the people, especially in the networks that I attract, people who tend to come from low-income communities or community of color where people assume don't give or people assume we're not philanthropic where we are. I don't like to lead with those assumptions. I just like to lay it out there and let people make their decisions because they're grown. Mm-hmm. And the data actually suggests the total opposite that actually the level of generosity and giving that happens in low-income communities, the percentage of that generosity to income is 
incredibly high and like wealth and generosity are not the same thing. And we often conflate them. And there's so much bias that then we project onto who our donors are or who our donors could be. And so I love what you're saying that this is about giving people an opportunity to express their values, to be a part of something meaningful. And everyone deserves that opportunity and they can decide for themselves whether they want it or not. That's exactly right. Okay, let's say there's an organization that has been doing peer-to-peer fundraising. Maybe they've had an event or two and they have a program up and running. They're like, okay, but you know, I've been doing this on nights and weekends and in between my regular work meetings. How do I transition? Because all of our money is going into programs. We're fully volunteer run. How do you suggest folks start to think about the step function that's involved and moving to an organization where they do have paid staff? What does that process look like and how do you walk folks through that? I think the place to start is the most boring place and it's the place that most people don't want to go and it's the budget. And the reason why I say that is because sometimes people, they don't project well what it really takes to run their programs and what it takes to run their programs well. And so if you don't know for yourself how much it will cost to be full-time or even to scale to full-time, so maybe you want to start part-time or on a contract basis and then grow from there, a lot of times people don't even know what that means and cost. So they can't plan for anything. They can't add that to a fundraising plan if the numbers aren't even written down. So I think the very first place is for them to decide, first of all, how much would a salary be? And you make that decision, obviously, with the board, if you're the executive director. But how much is a salary? How much does that cost in payroll? Right? Like the boring stuff that you really do have to figure out. When do we want to start? Are we going to start in the middle of the year? Are we going to scale? What does that look like to scale? What is part-time versus full-time? And then decide for yourself, okay, if we want to get there, should we be putting money away in reserves every month? So should we be putting planning to put reserves away when we do our fundraising? And then the other side of that is making sure you actually do have a fundraising plan, which I think a lot of people, especially when they're new, don't understand how to do that well. So they go together. So your budget tells you how much you need and your fundraising plan is basically your strategies to get it done. And so making sure that you're adequately fundraising for enough to cover what you need to cover in order to be a salaried person. So it's not a sexy answer, but it's often the most practical answer. And you can feel so much more empowered when you know, okay, if we raise this much or when we raise this much, then that's the step that I can take to begin to transition to full-time. What do you think when people are doing this, other than not wanting to look at the budget or make really strategic moves around this, what are some other mistakes that you see organizations make that folks should be aware of when they're making this type of growth plan? I think the interesting thing is with the founder, and typically it's the founder who wants to be the executive director. But a lot of times, especially with startups, the reason why they got into this was not because they wanted to lead an organization. It's because they wanted to help someone. So in order for them to transition to be an executive director, they have to own that role, which is less programmatic and more leadership. And it's more partnerships and collaborating and fundraising. 
And a lot of people don't make that shift very well or don't recognize that they need to make that shift. And they can kind of get stuck in, I have to be here to do the work. Well, no, you actually have to inspire and lead and motivate other people to do the work because now you have to assume a different role. And that takes some shifting and adjusting for people to recognize, but also to feel confident. Like some people can feel confident in doing the work because that's what they do. That's what they know. But they feel less confident meeting with funders or talking to major donors because they feel less than. But I like to tell people that money or power doesn't make anyone smarter than you. And you deserve to be in the room just like anybody else. So you cannot be intimidated by people and you're actually providing value to them by bringing your programming and the impact that you're making to them. So a lot of it really is mindset shifts and the beliefs that they have about whether or not they can fulfill this role and how to transition into the role. Mm, I love that you're talking about it from that angle. And I couldn't agree more like in my work and in my program, we talk a lot of, we do this process called asset mapping that helps organizations understand all the things of value inside their organization, including themselves and their skills. And because there is this very paternalistic, power dynamic set up from the beginning because of money and power in society that I think it's understandable that people feel the way that they feel because this is how this system has been set up. And so there does has to be this mindset shift and this growth and sort of stepping into the power and influence that you have, which is not easy for a lot of people. And particularly, I find people that are oriented towards wanting to help and support, they don't necessarily have that natural inclination. This was very true for me of like owning that space. And so I think the way that you're talking about it is really important. And also when you said like the founder executive, I wasn't sure exactly where you were going. I was like, Ooh, we're going to talk about founders. <laughs> but, I, but, That's I, <laughs> but I am curious, like for how you think about that piece too, like I've been a part of organizations where like it also was time for the founders to transition out of their roles and not for any negative reflection on what they had done. And this has been true for me. I actually demoted myself in a leadership role because I got to a point where I was like, the next phase of growth for this organization isn't me. Like I can tell, like I was the right leader for what we just did. And this next phase and where the board wants to take this organization, I'm not the person for that. And so what do you think? But I know that's uncommon and I wasn't the founder of the organization. So I didn't have that same emotional connection, I think, or attachment, which made it easier, I think, for me to make that logical decision. But I'm curious, like, what is some of your advice on like when a founder shouldn't be the ED or when they should move out of that role and how they can start to process and think through that? I think that starts from the very beginning before they even launch. And it starts with their understanding of what they're doing and why they're doing it. And people need to understand when you're starting a nonprofit, you do not own the nonprofit. But a lot of people who start from the ground up believe that because they don't know where else would they get the information. Like <laughs> they operate like it's a small business. So it's so close to them. It's their baby. It's incredibly personal. And for a lot of people, it's a, their own lived experience. And that's why they're starting. But they have to understand from the very beginning that you have to serve the best interests of the organization, not yourself. And when you are 
recruiting board members. They have certain duties that they have, and there's a duty of loyalty to the organization, not the founder. So that starts from the very beginning, like knowing that, having that education so that when it is time, you can make that assessment for yourself that I need to step back. But a lot of times founders don't even think beyond two, three years to a point where they could get to like, I may have to step down because the organization is moving in a different way or it's so big. So I think it really starts from the very beginning and them understanding really what it means to have a nonprofit and that it's for the best interest of the organization and its mission. And I don't know if that answered your question the best way, but I think it absolutely has to start there. And it's important to do assessments for the board to do an assessment of where they are and the direction of the organization, but for the founder to do a personal assessment about whether or not this serves them. Like, is this the step that they need to take in their personal and professional life? And I think doing that regular assessment can help also decide when it's time to step down. Mm, I think that is such good advice, especially around, you know, it syncs really well with your piece around starting with your why and engaging board members around that vision and the why and why that's so important versus like your friends coming on the board with you. Because right. yeah, it, it is not owned by you. This is not a, this has to be about the work and the impact and the exactly why you're doing this in the first place. And I understand how complicated it can get in the way that that intertwines with your ego and the fact that, and I don't use ego in like a, a negative way, just in a, our identity, you know, becomes right. so intertwined and we're asked to leverage our identity in how we fundraise and in how we promote the organization. And so on the one hand, we're told like, this all depends on you and do this for a little pay or no pay because of how much you believe in it and how much you love it, but then also don't take it personally. And we're like, right. Wait, what? <laughs> like, is this personal or not? <laughs> so yeah. I think like there's a lot of ways where we're asked to take it personally in order to make a lot of sacrifices to build these organizations. And then we're told to not take it personally when, when that feels like it gets in the way. So for nonprofit leaders, founders, executive directors, anyone who feels like, gosh, I feel this like dual tug around like, yeah, that's real. And that exists. And I think your advice around consistent reflection around alignment and like your personal alignment with the organization's alignment and that being process that's contributed to by many people who are sort of viewing the growth and the trajectory of the organization is such great advice. What do you think, like, what's a question about starting a nonprofit that I'm not asking that I should be asking that you get a lot? I don't know. I have to think about that more. I think you really hit it on the head. It's around the board and it's around money. Like, how do I raise money? And then how do I find board members? So I think we've pretty much covered that. Okay, I'm going to drop a bomb then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then I just thought of, because I'm just so curious about how you think about this too. When is it time for an organization to close? This is so good because one of my followers on YouTube, she recently sent me an email and she said, it's time for me to shut down. I am an introvert. I didn't know that it would be all of this. And I realized that I'm not the person for this and I just don't have space for this in my life and I want to help, but this is not for me. And I made the decision to dissolve. So I think that like the traditional answer people would say is when you complete your mission, like that's when you shut down. 
And I have an interesting opinion on that. I believe that the nonprofit sector is vital in that I don't think there is a world where we don't have nonprofits. Like we need that safety net. There's some things that government and business just won't do. And so we need the sector to be there. But I do believe when you need to do that assessment for yourself as an organization and as a person in this and say, are we the right fit for what we're doing right now? Are we doing justice to our mission? Is our mission even still relevant? It's not an easy answer, but doing an assessment about where you are, what's working, what's not working, and being real with yourself about whether this is really sustainable is important. But you don't do that unless you have a solid team around you, pushing you, challenging you. And you don't do that unless you have quality meetings and quality discussion with that board, which is something we didn't talk about because I know we don't have time for that. But it's also like, what are you talking about when you're meeting? Like, how are you planning? How are you visioning? How are you doing research to make sure you're approaching this the right way? You're always assessing, especially in the beginning, because you have to be nimble. You have to adjust what direction is right for you. So I don't think it's an easy answer, but I do think it's that constant assessment and being real with yourself about like you may not have to be here and that's okay. Mm, it's a really complicated emotional experience, I think, even to consider that. And I think that advice around the fit, around that you are changing so much in the beginning and you might find that how the organization grows or develops or the version of it that it becomes no longer than feels like the fit for the skills, staff, what you want to be doing, all this. Yeah. And something I'm a big advocate for is, I don't know if this is the right word in nonprofit, but kind of like acquisition in the nonprofit sector. I think there's a lot of opportunities for organizations to merge, to acquire each other. I mean, in one of the organizations that I ended up leading, I ended up becoming the interim executive director because of a crisis situation. I really didn't want to be in that leadership role, but I ended up being there. And and once I was in that role, I started to see all of the problems with how the organization had been built and the inefficiencies and the fact that it didn't actually appear to be scalable any longer. And the organization had basically been built on such low pay and a lot of things happening sort of out of even legal employment, you know, requirements wow, yeah. that it was like what it would take to move the organization into a financially sustainable place, what felt impossible to me. And this was after a year of stabilizing the organization, fixing a lot of things. I was like, this is going to stay in consistent, like hustle, grind, burnout mode. And so I found an organization who was willing to acquire the program, maintain all of the local programming, maintain the entire brand of the organization, but absorb the operations. It would have been awesome if the board had gone for it. They did not want to go for it. They didn't want to. And I left because I was like, I just don't believe that we should continue moving in this direction. It, it's not aligned with me anymore. And 18 months later, the organization filed for bankruptcy. And so I think like there's a lot of like checking ourselves that we need to do. And I'll say for folks who are listening to that, who are like, ooh, Mallory, like rough go, you know, <laughs> is like, yeah. And I had built up that organization for five years. I'd given my life to that work. And people ask me a lot about how I feel about all that happening or if I regret anything really in what happened there. And I don't. And I think for five years, we made a really tremendous 
positive impact on a lot of people, a lot of communities, a lot of systemic issues. And then a choice was made and the organization couldn't continue at a certain point. And I think that's okay. You know, like it doesn't mean all the work we did wasn't powerful and meaningful work. Not that was not lost. And so I wish it maybe hadn't gone down exactly the way that it went down in terms of how it impacted people's lives. But nonprofit is not a failure in my mind at all. No, I agree with you. I'm glad you said that because sometimes reality is you have to close, but just because you close doesn't mean you didn't touch the lives of the people that you were serving. Mm. Right. And so I think in the sector too much, we focus on the organization and is an organization functioning the way we believe it should be functioning. And I think that's important, but we don't often like look at the actual impact we're making to the person or to the thing that we're trying to change. And think of all the encounters, all the impressions that you made as an organization before you had to dissolve, unfortunately, that are going to reverberate throughout your community. And you don't know what conversation or what encounter will inspire someone to do something else, what it could spark even years down the line. So I agree with that. I do think that dissolving is not failure and that if you could serve at least one person, that's one person who wasn't going to get served by something or someone else. And that's still important. A hundred percent. Okay. Where can folks go to connect with you, to learn more about your work, to work with you? I'm so grateful for this conversation today and just for the way you've walked us through this process. Sure. And thank you again for having me and allowing me the platform to talk about this because I know a lot of people don't like talking about startup nonprofits because they think there are too many nonprofits. So why would you help people start? But I thank you for having me. You can find me on YouTube. You just put in Boss on a Budget. So I have videos that I drop every week and I also go live on YouTube and answer questions in real time. And you can also find me at my website at bossonabudget.com. And I have a bunch of free resources and a few workbooks and masterclasses you can also purchase. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tiffany. I'm so grateful for this conversation. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, this is the episode that I needed to hear as a young managing director and executive director. I hope you are having light bulb moments like I was throughout this entire episode. Here are some of the top things that I am double clicking on right now. Number one, if you want to start a nonprofit, start by clarifying your why and understanding the gap you want to fill in the nonprofit sector. Number two, Then conduct markets research to identify existing organizations addressing similar issues and analyze their strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. Number three, build a strong board by including individuals with legal counsel or connections, accounting or bookkeeping expertise, programmatic knowledge, and lived experience related to your mission. And number four, begin fundraising efforts by effectively messaging your mission and the impact you aim to make, even if you haven't implemented programs yet. Consider peer-to-peer fundraising campaigns to generate support and donations, highlighting the passion and enthusiasm of those advocating for your cause. Number five, articulate the potential impact of your programs and the communities you aim to serve to attract donors who resonate with your mission. You have to do it this way before you can prove program impact. 
And I also want to stress that as you go through that market research phase, what you might identify is that there already are enough organizations doing this work. And instead of creating your own nonprofit, you could actually partner with them to strengthen their work. Okay. For additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Tiffany and our amazing sponsors, Constant Contact. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.